Cuyamaca Conversations. My name is Taylor Smith. I'm the chair of the Performing Arts Department at Cuyamaca College. Today I'm going to be interviewing Tom Catanzaro. Tom is a professional saxophonist who has played with some of San Diego's most prominent jazz musicians, including Gilbert Castellanos, as well as some of Los Angeles and Orange County's most prolific players. Today I'm going to talk to Tom a bit about his journey as a musician. He took about a 10-year hiatus and has recently returned to performing, so I'm going to talk a bit to him about how and why he made the decision to quit performing and how and why he decided to come back. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, so Tom and I go back a pretty long way. Um, We went to high school together. Um, I'm a few years older than him, so we overlapped by, what, maybe two years in high school, I think? Yep, two years. And, uh, yeah, so we went to high school together. We were also roommates at Idlewild Arts Academy one summer. Uh, and a kind of weird thing about that is also one of our roommates was this guy named Angus Sutherland, who is, uh, Donald Sutherland's son, Kiefer Sutherland's brother. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, he was a weird dude. (laughs) (laughs) Super funny though. Yes. I mean, it was really cool. I mean, but that's, I, that's kind of what you get. You go to Idlewild for the summer and you get a bunch of weird people. Like that's how it goes, <laughs> yes. right? Yes, hippies in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Tom, uh, kind of give me a little bit of a rundown. What, do you, what is it? What do you do? What is your, uh, what's your current situation like? Uh, well, I am currently locked down at home, <laughs> which doesn't, uh, makes for pretty boring music life. Um, Hey, just one thing on the background, though. I want to point out that uh, you were actually pretty influential when we were in high school. I saw you post uh, a few days ago, uh, Kind of Blue, as a a record that was influential on you. And I remember you coming to my house and showing me that for the first time. Um, And before then, I had been listening to a lot of, like, much older jazz. (laughs) Like, older than Kind of Blue. (laughs) And I'll I'll tell you why in a minute, because, you know... in terms of my professional background, I started with like traditional jazz. So I was listening to older stuff, but yeah, I just think that was so awesome that you were able to kind of modernize me into the late sixties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Modernize you with a record from what? 1959. Oh, that's right. 59 for that one. Yes. yes. Uh, well, yeah, it was funny. Cause you know, here's this, uh, Tom was kind of known at, at our high school and, and around town as, you know, this very talented saxophone player. And, and I said, oh, well, you know, so who do you like listening to? And he names like all of these really old, like, <laughs> uh, you know, all these really old dudes. And I'm like, uh, no Coltrane, no Cannonball. And he's like, no, 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 I don't like that. Stuff. Not there yet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway, so. I was only 14, ahead, Taylor. You know, I just. That's true. Give me some time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> to climb up the musical genre ladder. Um but anyways, yeah, I just thought that that was a really neat thing when I saw you post that. I was like, oh, yeah, an influential on me too, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you're playing. Uh, well, you're not playing at the moment because everything's locked down. Right. But like, you know, how how often how often do you play? So I was playing every week. I was. Um, um, so you know, one part of the story is I had actually laid down uh, playing music for a while, transitioned careers around the 2009 financial crash. Uh, but in the last two years, I had picked it up again, and uh, I particularly had a passion to try to rebuild um, the arts programs locally, the ones that I came up through uh, that are pretty much suffering quite a bit, have been for a while. And in that pursuit, I had brought some of my old friends to town to do run a jazz camp. And 
they wanted to, you know to sort of repay the favor um because that's very much how the industry works <laughs> you scratch my back i'll scratch yours uh they tossed yeah. me I, I got a few gigs that basically broke me into the uh corporate music scene and uh i had a bunch of steady work great paying work um and uh i was doing that pretty consistently uh for a couple years and then uh my last corporate gig was February 7th and then it all hit the fan and um, everything's, everything's gone. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, so that's recently now how, now I know that you, you took kind of like a almost 10, was it 10 years off? Yeah. Okay. You could take kind of a 10 year hiatus on all of that, but let's go even before that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, before, for a little bit of background also. So, Tom lives in Hemet, which is where I grew up. So he's he's there again. So when he's talking about, you know, coming to town, he's talking. You're talking there in Hemet. Yes. Um, but you do gig here in San Diego as well as Orange County in LA, yep. right? Yep. But let's go before that. So you know, you, as soon as you're high, uh, finishing up high school, um, you then went away to to go to music school, right? And how? What was that like? Where did you go? Who did you study with? Yeah. So. Um... I uh, so I, I applied to two colleges, USC, uh, who had been kind of you know grooming me for their program for a while, until they got hold of my grades. And <laughs> now my overall high school GPA was like three point four, and so on on the surface I looked good. And then um, just before they let me in, I went and auditioned at all this. Uh, the dean called me back and said, uh, "So we have a problem. We took all the band classes out of your." your grades and realized <laughs> that you only really had like a 2.6 <laughs> and i was like oh they caught me <laughs> um you were you were subsidizing your gpa with music classes. I, was, I was padding my grades <laughs> with with the arts classes um and uh the only other school i applied to was manhattan school of music uh which is a music conservatory in new york city so uh, i got accepted there uh which was great because didn't really have any other plan. And um, I got to study with all kinds of people, but my private teacher was Bob Mincer, who uh, was very inspirational to me. You know, we did a lot of, we played a lot of his music in, in high school um, and it was good music. Um, most of, most of which he did not remember. I come to find out, I said, oh man, I love playing this, this tune of yours, like Heart of the Matter. And he's like, what, what was that? <laughs> so... That was kind of interesting, but um, yeah, uh, that was an incredible experience, just saturated in the art scene, um, and really realized where I was on the totem pole, uh, you know, so I was not a big fish in a small pond anymore, I would even say in, in terms of LA, um, but uh, the greatest musicians in the world all congregate there in New York City, and the competition is fierce. Cool, so, so you went out there. And then you came back to California after a little bit. You came back and moved back to Southern California, right? Yeah. Um, and then did you do some playing when you first got back, or did, was that the beginning of your retirement? It, no. So I came back, and um, one, of the, one of the things that the, the small, isolated town of Hemet imparted to me was a nasty drug habit. And um, uh, when I went out to New York, that it really started to kind of consume me. <laughs> Uh, and I dropped out, but I got a freebie when I came home. Um, my teacher, uh, the, the private teacher I had in my senior year was Jeff Clayton of the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra in LA. 
And so he actually got me on tour with the Clayton Hamilton band, like it's probably within five months of coming home. Um, and yeah, I got sort of another chance at life. Um, but, uh, that was a different kind of rude awakening. <laughs> uh, just the hardships of being on the road, uh, the hazing, the way other older pros treat you when you're kind of new to the scene. I was 19 and I was, uh, you know, trying to play with these guys, incredible experience, you know, just played the most awesome venues, played with the most incredible world-class musicians and performing artists. Um, but I, uh, long story short, ended up dropping the ball on that one as well <laughs> and coming home again. Um, and, uh, and then just kind of went into a deep depression and, um, I, I, I gave it another go, uh, after I turned 21, uh, it was like the scene was accessible to me. That's when I started going down to San Diego, playing with Gilbert Castellanos. Um, and then I played with him pretty consistently for a while. And there was a time, you know, I'd say 2000, 2005 to eight or nine, um, I was working, you know, four or five nights a week, either in San Diego, Orange County or LA playing with the best musicians in Southern California um, until the financial crash. And that was sort of the opportunity, like all, within a, a year of that housing crash, uh, all of our work went away. Uh, and it, it, that was across the board. Uh, people were just barely surviving. Um, and that's when I decided to transition careers and kind of come back home and uh, yeah, just kind of start a new journey. But so, I mean, so playing with the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra, like, that's a big, big gig for a 19-year-old. I mean, that's a huge deal. Um, so, and then, and so that, that, for a variety of reasons, as you said, kind of didn't work out, and then the financial crash comes and all that. So, um, what then made you decide to come back a couple of years ago? Um, sort of a conviction that... Um, how do I say this? Like a redefining of my categories. Um, and you know, I'll say it was, it was sort of a, a, it was due to kind of a spiritual awakening, but also just a sense that, um, this identity that I had put in my music, um, was at, you know, at first it came with the expectation that I was supposed to be famous or I was supposed to uh, achieve a certain level of success by a certain amount of time. Um, and much of the drug habit was, um, a result of those expectations, uh, being put on me by, uh, the industry, by my hometown, my family, by myself. Um, and it was just kind of an unsustainable life. There was just way too much pressure and way too much competition. And there was kind of, I just had this awakening where I realized that uh, this that music was still a part of me. It's not something that I could ignore or walk away from per se, um, and that uh, I it still had a purpose beyond bringing me glory and fame, <laughs> um, or just a, you know personal en enjoyment or enrichment, uh, and that in fact you know music is is really about um, a building a creative platform to not only express yourself but tell your story um and the more i took advantage of opportunities to do that the more i saw people being impacted by it and so um i kind of went back uh, and i think the other thing that made it a, a viable option in my mind again was when i had left the industry i was 
for the most part, just playing in clubs till 3 a.m. And, uh, you know, which wasn't very conducive to healthy habits and healthy lifestyles. And um, even though the musicians I was working with were great, uh, they were incredible, top-notch, they also weren't the most wonderful human beings to be around. Um, and so I kind of had this idea during that, that 10 years off of, well, I don't want to go back to that. I have a family to raise now. Um, you know, I, I can't be in bars in LA till 3 AM for 60 bucks plus dinner anymore. You know, I can't be doing that five nights a week. And, um, uh, so, I mean, to my surprise, uh, I think it was just timing. It was just, you know, being a little bit older now. Uh, my playing being a little bit more refined. You know, funny thing about having the time off is I feel like I became a better player just because uh, I had, you know, different different perception of what I was doing, different perception of the music over time. Um, and uh, I kind of dropped a lot of the elitist <laughs> sort of uh, jazz purist kind of stuff. And uh, I started to enjoy different styles, different genres. I, I started to enjoy playing uh, different styles and different genres of music, um, and sort of putting my own spin on it. And, uh, all of a sudden I became a lot more marketable <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and even kind of in, in Orange County and some of the corporate gigs there, you know, even getting the request of a 30 year old saxophone player, <laughs> you know, for, for different gigs. And, um, yeah. And so I just kind of found a, a nice little market and I found a lot of money and I found clean people, you know, and I found, uh, uh, interesting people, but, uh, you know, people who weren't, didn't have the hangups that I, I used to kind of be, be surrounded with in the past. Uh, and you know, I needed the money cause I had growing family and, uh, there were very few marketable skills that I had built up over the years. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a combination of those things that kind of brought me back. So, all right, cool. Thanks for that. Um, and speaking of growing families, uh, Tom just welcomed his fifth child yes. into the world just, what, what did you say, three weeks ago? Yes. Yes. Born in the age Tom of COVID. The, oh, yeah. So now you're playing again, and do you, how, pretending that we weren't in the middle of a global pandemic, <laughs> how often are you playing? Are you part of a regular band? What's, what's kind of your day-to-day -day like? Yeah, so um, I was, you know, playing at least once or twice a week out of town um, and, you know, either for rehearsal for a corporate band or for a corporate gig. Um, there are some, you know, it is seasonal. So um, there are some, some months where you're going out three, four times a week. Um, and, you know, now this is uh, living in Hemet, mind you. So I'm pretty far from the scene um, and, uh, you know, really just dependent on the phone ringing. Uh, and so it's pretty, pretty difficult for me to like drive around and solicit business, um, because everything's two hours away. But, um, yeah, I would say the phone was, was ringing for gigs uh, on a busy season, like last fall. Uh, it was on average three nights a week, um, for either corporate rehearsal, corporate band rehearsal or, or corporate gig, or, um, you know, some of my own stuff that I was trying to put together, uh, in town. Or um, you know, just 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 random, random little gigs. The nice thing about the corporate good-paying work is it affords you the ability to, um, you know, take the hit to get some local things together. Um, so I was able to bring some of my musician friends out to Hemet uh, without without the need for me to get paid, um, mm -hmm. and bring them out to like the Dime Valley Art Center and things like that. So 
So can you can you elaborate a little bit when you say I I think I know what you mean when you say these corporate gigs, but for those that aren't in that world, what does that mean when you say a corporate gig? Yeah, so um, basically corporations uh, have big parties, galas, fundraisers, uh, and they spend a lot of money for uh, musicians to <laughs> be wallpaper, basically, <laughs> um, and just to to make things look really really good and classy. Um, and you know they they you have to be uh pretty presentable uh so it's different than 10 years ago when i was just kind of you know doing the grunge thing in the clubs um you know you have to be uh, on time you have to know how to uh, talk to the managers um you have to have a pretty stellar repertoire um and you have to be able to play all styles um and all and have you know lots of different um uh songs and just musical sensibilities under your belt um and uh yeah so it wasn't always the most exciting uh but uh you know in the corporate world there's just so much money being thrown around i mean these are you know some of them just several hundred thousand dollar events <laughs> being put on and so yeah. um and what's what sizes are these bands? Are you talking like trios? You're talking quintets, big bands, all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. So I mean, there were some gigs where uh, I would it would just be me and a speaker, a loudspeaker, uh, playing to some backing tracks uh, that I've kind of prearranged on iReal Pro. Sometimes uh, it would be a three piece or a six piece band, just doing sort of either you know cocktail hour or or playing uh, sort of dance band stuff, um, all the way to this other band in Orange County um, was actually like a 40 piece corporate band, um, full string section, full percussion section, uh, background vocalists, uh, full big band horn section, uh, and then a whole bunch of uh, uh, lookalike, like celebrity singers, <laughs> you know, so like the Rod Stewart <laughs> yeah. guy and like the Tina Turner and the Beatles <laughs> group and, you know, um, and of course they, they go all out at the events and do the makeup and they look exactly like those people and they sing like them. And, um, you know, so that is, that, that was a pretty interesting gig. Uh, and that was pretty steady. That's actually the last, the last one I did in February before everything dried up. Cool. So, so with that, if you had your, you know, your dream gig, like what is your favorite type of group to play in? Your favorite setting, your favorite style. What is your kind of dream? Game? Man, we were gonna do it in May. It's it's the <laughs> trio. We were actually it was supposed to be today, wasn't it? Was it? I think it was supposed to be today. <laughs> oh man, it was today or tomorrow? Anyway, oh yeah. that that well that was it. You know, uh, that was it. Yeah. Okay. Sax trio, which was what for those that aren't aware. Yeah. What, what was that gonna? So be? just um, bass, drums, and my horn. Yeah, and or horns, you know, tenor and soprano. Typically, I like to to play. Um, yeah, there's there's so much harmonic flexibility. So jazz is you know ninety five percent improvised, right? Uh, and and one of the things I learned playing in New York um, was uh, the, the the repertoire, the songs that we all play are the same, and they have been the same for a hundred years. Um, and so the challenge becomes well. First of all, they're timeless songs, so they're they're worth playing again. But the challenge becomes how can we reframe them? How can we um, sort of deconstruct them and build them into something that sounds new and modern? Um, and 
jazz being sort of a musical conversation, <laughs> the less people you have in that conversation, the more flexibility you have yeah. uh, in a sense, right? Uh, so uh, if you just break the music down into rhythm and harmony, um, you know, drums are pretty much provide all the rhythm. Bass is that middle man keep, provides a lot of the harmony, uh, but then also the sort of the, the rhythmic aspects as well, um, just because the instrument's very percussive. Um, and then um, that gives me a, a, a full palette to, to really paint whatever picture I want without clashing with other harmonic instruments. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, no, that totally, totally does. That's interesting. Um, it would have been a lot of fun, Taylor. You know, <laughs> it could have been a really good game. Yeah, I was looking forward to it for sure. Um, yeah, so so that setting, that kind of pianoless trio thing, is your favorite sort of setting? Sounds like. Uh, yeah, that that's my favorite setting. Just um, yeah, because the total harmonic freedom uh, in in what my instrument can do, um, and just the simplified conversation. Mm -hmm. in, in in the improvisation and uh, the interplay between the rhythm instruments. And it also frees me up to be more percussive in my approach um, because I'm dealing with, you know, mostly percussive instruments and bass and, and mm. an acoustic bass and a drum set. Um, and yet it also is a lot easier for me to lead harmony, uh, to lead the bassist in, in, in some different harmony. And, and at that point, essentially we're keeping the form of the song that we all know and the, and we're keeping the melody of the song that we all know and love. Right. Uh, but <laughs> the harmonic possibilities in between are just limitless. And so, uh, groove is sort of up, up for grabs. Uh, but also just the general vibe of the song and the mood, um, can change on a dime, you know, and it's just less people to kind of keep in the loop on that. Yeah, no, I like how you said that when there are, you know, when there are fewer people involved in a way, everybody can be stretched out a little more. They can be a little more adventurous. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I know that <clears throat> uh, in pop music, we tend to uh, sometimes think that more is better, that let's get more instruments in here. Let's make it more complicated, you know, but often it's stripping it down is where you can actually make it more intricate. Um because now each, each part is that much more crucial, you know, uh, and also that much more space to, to fill up that they can take. So that's, that's cool. I like Yeah, that. intricate and, and intimate for the audience. Right. Um, which actually requires a great deal of creativity to engage the audience at that point. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's, yeah, that's true. That's a good point, because it's, uh, I would imagine playing in a bigger band is, I mean, among other things, just literally louder and so therefore more exciting yep. for the audience. And so if you strip out all those instruments, it's that much more of a challenge, but also more of a reward to get the buy-in from the audience. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that sounds like it would have been a great concert. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to <laughs> if it could have happened. <laughs> um, cool. So are you, um, so you're living in Hemet, you've been there for a while and you've, the last couple of years been getting back into the swing of things, so to speak, and you're playing lots of gigs now. Um, are you feeling like being in Hemet is like, is a, have you felt a, a need to, to move, essentially? Like to be closer to where the action is, so to speak, rather than having to drive two hours to every single gig. Um, are you, are you, have you felt that? Or are you feeling like you're doing just fine where you are? Yeah, um, a little of both. You know, so there's a, a, sometimes a desire usually when I'm in the thick of that sort of busy season and I'm just driving a lot, 
um, there's kind of a desire to move a little closer, although I don't actually want to live in the city. So here's the, the trade-off. Um, you know, so actually spending big chunks of my life in sort of urban areas, um, especially like New York City, um, I really loved it, but it was unsustainable for me personally. Uh, I could not control myself. Um, I could not discipline myself to sleep, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, so, so there's something about the scene being a little bit closer, uh, where it just, you know, makes for some, some bad decisions, uh, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and you know, but that's a personal thing. Uh, I think the other issue is, uh, I really appreciate, uh, having the mountains like a half an hour away. And uh, that's really good for me, especially just as an artist as well, uh, because, you know, I, I would say my music is uh, really one of the main emotional outlets for me personally. Um, and, you know, beauty in general, I think, is something that kind of feeds my soul, whether it's uh, music or nature. Um, and it's kind of hard to find that right combination in really super populated um, urban areas and it's and it's too hard to break away and find sort of the solitude that you need to recharge uh, but again I think that's you know personal personal preference for for people um, different musicians depending on where they're coming at it from um, whether they're introvert extrovert things like that uh, but I definitely appreciate being able to to, to break away um, and come home to a place that's much quieter um, and then go back you know, to that place. It's just when I have to go four nights in a row or something, <laughs> that's when it yeah, becomes, yeah. A, you know, trouble. Yeah. You know, I used to, um, before I got this, this job here in San Diego, I was, uh, I taught in San Bernardino and I was living in Hemet at the time, just for well, just a year. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, that was, you know, a good 45 minute to hour long commute each way yep. every day. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I kind of enjoyed the commute only because it just gave me a time to kind of like one prep on the way in, you know, kind of like clear my head of all the craziness at home mm -hmm. and like prep for the coming class or whatever I was doing. And secondly, at the end of the day, same thing, kind of like I have 45 minutes to get over all the baggage that I picked up at work and not bring it home. Yes. You know? Yeah. So I, I do kind of understand that, that feeling like you have a kind of quiet separate place to go uh afterward i i totally i get that um but i do know that being on the road for four hours for a three-hour gig can be <laughs> not fun as well so yeah it does get tiresome like yeah. i said when you're in the middle of it um yeah. but i still you know like being able to break away to the mountains or yeah, yeah. so um would you is, are there any players or or maybe uh, even just like movements that you're kind of excited about right now? Anything that you're with your ears out there listening to people? Is there anybody that you're really excited about or, or movements that you're excited about? Well, so, um, yeah, obviously, you know, some of my old friends from New York uh, since I left are, are, you know, becoming famous now. And I just I love them. And um, and it's great to watch them just kind of hit that level like uh, Charles Altura. Um, incredible guitarist, um, plays with uh, Terrence Blanchard and Chick Corea now. It's like, wow, you know. Um, 
and uh, guys like Ambrose Akamusery, um, good friend in, in Manhattan School of Music. Um, you know, just doing his thing, man. And and he's really innovative, incredibly innovative player. Um, and so it's also just kind of fun to remember when those guys were developing that stuff and and working some of that stuff out. Um, and uh, uh, Lakeisha Benjamin was a friend in New York. She's she's really broken in and doing some really awesome kind of fusion things. Um, and and still like really representing the roots very well. Um, you know, and just in terms of trends, I, I totally dig postmodern jukebox. Like, I just love the way they're <laughs> they're bringing some of the older style back because that's even before sort of the uh, you know they're doing it like ragtime traditional jazz type yeah, thing, yeah. Uh, but they're doing the, these renditions of pop songs that are just they're just end up being really good, man. Um, because there's there's so many elements there um, in all American music that is tied back to jazz, and so I just think it's just really really neat how they how they fuse all that. Um, there are other trends I'm not as excited about. Like I, I do feel like um, sometimes, uh, and I've, I've, I've talked to a few musicians about this recently, some of the guys I used to hit with sort of in, in Gilbert's circle. Um, but jazz has definitely taken a turn towards the complex, the hyper complex. Uh, and it's either become sort of a, an artistic statement. In other words, it's very overly technical for the sake mm-hmm. of, being overly technical <laughs> not for the sake of like you know mm-hmm. making music or engaging people um and or or kind of becoming a political statement i've noticed also um where there's there's been a lot of you know uh, just injustice sort of communicated through the music and you know i think there's a place for that but um in a music in an art form that is essentially dying you know there's just a smaller and smaller market for it with each passing year um i just don't think that's a healthy trend because um you know at some point you you don't want to you want to preserve the roots of 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 the language you know so historically jazz was a language you know for people who were who came from different cultures and backgrounds and languages and it was a shared uh, not only uniquely american art form but it was probably the only the only genre of music that went cross-cultural you know um the way it did um and i think mm-hmm. some of that is being uh missed in, in some of the modern trends and um it's just that it doesn't feel as accessible as it used to so so speaking of that you know we had talked earlier kind of when you were f- when we were young you know 14 15 years old um <laughs> that i pulled out kind of blue and this was like a revelation for you in a way, which is which is a little bit weird because for many people that's their first experience with jazz, I think, is probably Miles Davis, probably kind of blue. Like if you're just a regular, you know, you like rock music, you like pop music, and somebody says, Oh, you should try getting into jazz, that's I think where most people start is probably with kind of blue. And now here you were and you were already playing at a pretty high level and you hadn't even heard it. <laughs> so <laughs> which is, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but, um, let's talk a little bit about that. So you, you'd mentioned kind of your kind of musical trajectory and how you kind of came up through this older style and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so in the public elementary schools, uh, that, you know, when I started playing, uh, I think it was nine, um, they, they were very active. They were, 
you know, pretty good programs. And uh, when I was 11, um, our elementary school jazz band went to perform at a pro festival in Palm Springs. And um, one of the professionals there kind of took me under his wing um, and immediately started inviting me to jam sessions and performances uh, for his band. And they were in L.A. Uh, So I was kind of learning on the job from age 11. Um, because this guy had just continued to invite me. Well, he was, it was mostly a traditional jazz scene. So was this one of those, like, used to play in Sinatra's band kind of situations out there? (laughs) No. So this guy, uh, his name was George Probert, and he was, um, he was actually, uh, one of the original members of the first Disneyland Ah. band, the Firehouse Five. So, uh, you know, I, I think Disney had that same sort of desire to, like, preserve you know, older history, older culture, American culture. And, um, and, uh, you know, so, and that was in the fifties, uh, but he had been playing since, um, you know, the thirties and, um, it was sort of in the style of like Sidney Bechet and, uh, Buddy Bolden and, uh, Louis Armstrong. Um, and, and so I really learned that. And, you know, so, so in music, you know, people will typically get their roots from, you know, they're, they're sort of, one, four, five progression roots, uh, either from like church or folk music, or in this case, it was traditional jazz, right? Where blues in a sense, like, so, uh, just learning those, those songs, um, gave me sort of my foundation, not only for ear training, uh, but just for the basic way that music worked and the way, the way that progressions worked. And it just eventually became with that foundation in place, it was like, you know, if you you play this one song, then you, you can probably play a hundred other songs that have a similar structure and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so what, um, what did you find when you got to college? Was it, was, did, did you feel like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, was that background and that kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, extra old fashioned jazz training, I'm guessing that your classmates probably didn't come up that same way. At Manhattan, no. So, do, no, do you didn't. think that was an advantage? Do you think that was a disadvantage? I think it was definitely an advantage, um, but it took me a little longer to modernize. Although I adapted pretty quickly, and uh, a lot of my friends out there who actually lived in New York uh, did have some context for it through Winton Marsalis. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And you know, it's because Winton basically he was hyper modern in the early '90s, and then he just took this turn towards like preservationist. And um, he built uh, like a whole nonprofit on preserving uh, traditional jazz, um, which the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra mostly does. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also showed me, uh, I, I think he, he, you know, people respected him for that. They didn't understand it because it, it kind of felt like he was going backwards. But I think uh, he, sh- he really demonstrates how you can um, still be incredibly creative <laughs> and modern uh, within that 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 uh, framework. Um, and so, yeah, it really, you know, you, you, when you start out, especially in something like jazz, um, it's like learning a language and you just want to, you listen to people who do it at a high level and an exciting level. You just want to imitate that. And so you, you just learn a ton of vocabulary and you learn a ton of, uh, technique, uh, only to realize that, um, you know, the reason why Louis Armstrong is still brilliant was because he, uh, was lyrical <laughs> and he, he was spontaneously composing melodies, not just, 
you know, endless bebop lines. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, some some part of that lyricism was sort of built into me at an early age, and it always helped kind of become a filter for the hyper-technical stuff that I was learning along the way. There's something to be said about the uh, the nuance that that type of playing allows that maybe gets... I mean, I don't want to throw say it gets thrown out the window with like you know super fast bebop lines or something, but there is a certain amount of nuance that you get in that older style that maybe is not quite as highly prized. I guess maybe a way to say it in the more modern style. Yep. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so your um, your situation now is you know playing well again, assuming we weren't in some sort of crazy plague uh you're playing fairly regularly and you know and all that's and uh it seems like it's working out okay uh do you have what are your kind of what do you see as a trajectory what's coming up what do you see as a future growth what what, what are your thoughts on that yeah um well so the playing is going well but i've i learned um that it's uh, unsustainable on its own, right? And so it's actually just become uh, one of a few different jobs. And sort of what's on my heart recently is sort of consolidating and actually figuring out a way to uh, make what I do uh, have a greater impact, to be a little more scalable. Um, and I'm I'm actually thinking about, <laughs> I would love to uh, start a music school, an online music school, because one of my uh, problems in sharing culture with my hometown um, is the enormous expense it takes to bring musicians from the scene out here to invest. Um, and uh, technology has really made that easier. And I would love to figure out a way to um, basically make a living while also making an impact and, and uh, finding the funds to uh, put musicians out here in contact with uh great musicians who live much further away um and which in fact is one of the things that our band teacher in high school did well right jeff tower he made such a um a point to constantly be bringing us around the pros and that i think was you know so much of the inspiration to be a professional musician was watching these guys interacting with them playing with them um so yeah as i, I even with my own kids <laughs> i'm just thinking I really want to, uh, you know, uh, my daughter Jubilee, six years old, she's sitting at the piano and she's got a great ear. She's got a great voice. And it's like, wow, I, I want her to learn piano at a high level. Um, but how do I do that when I'm stuck in Hemet, you know? And it's just like, I want, well, I could probably do it through Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, call up one of my friends, you know, but then how do I pay him enough and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just, you know, I've, I've been thinking about a way to create a, um, a, a, a music, an online music school potentially nonprofit, something that, you know, could be subsidized by the government or something, grants or something, uh, to put people in impoverished communities in touch with high-level professional musicians who can teach their butt off and give these people uh, not only a marketable skill, but a way to build community and something to be, you know, proud of that will keep them out of trouble and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's cool. That's a cool uh, project. Um... You know, you mentioned that with our band director, Ms. Uh, Jeff Tower, <clears throat> he would do a, uh, basically bring out like a high profile player every year to kind of play one concert with the, with the band, you know? 
Um, then there'd be the clinics. Yeah, and then we'd have clinics with these folks, you know? And so I remember when I was in college, uh, I don't even remember exactly the context, but you had brought up USC earlier, and somehow this was coming up in a, in a class. We were talking about something, and somebody mentions Shelley Berg and they're talking about, oh, he's this great genius, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I've met him. He's... Seems like a normal guy to me, you know, like <laughs> I didn't realize that meeting Shelley Berg as like a 14 year old kid was actually like a really big deal, you know, because yep. I had played with him like I didn't know any better and, and ditto yes. for multiple other people, you know, I mean, we went on a, I went on a cruise, uh, like tr high school trip, you know, and we played behind like, uh, Bill Watrous and Marv Stam. Yeah. It's like, uh, seemed normal to me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but it is actually pretty powerful when I kind of take a step back and think about it. And I didn't catch it at the time because I was too immature and didn't really understand what was going on, you know. But to be up there and, and rubbing shoulders with these guys is actually a pretty powerful thing. And so that's yes. a, that's a yeah, and and evidently made an impact on you because you're right. You're in the industry. Must have. <laughs> <laughs> so um, cool. So now one other question, which is just if you were to kind of go backward and, you know, revisit yourself as I'm considering working as a musician. You're 17 years old, kind of looking at your future. And what would you give to somebody like yourself when you were 17, 18 years old, who's kind of just now looking at a possibility of a career in music? What might be something that you would give them as like a, you know, some advice? Um, don't compete. Yeah. Uh, just don't compete. Um, I think that was sort of the nature of our, our community, right? I mean, a lot of that was built in hyper-competitive, um, between schools and then between cities and districts and, um, yeah. And I, I wish I had known then that that really shouldn't factor in at all. I mean, competition in the sense of, you know, bettering yourself or developing your craft. Like I, I think there is, there's a healthy version of competition, but for me it became, uh, I need to succeed or my life is not worth anything. And, and I think that's where certain teachers came in and just gave me a more holistic view. Like Jeff Clayton said, you know, he kind of brought home the reality of, um, you know, playing, playing music is great, but you probably need to learn real estate too. <laughs> it's like, you're not going to just make a living on this. Uh, Bob Mincer kind of brought home the reality of, um, yeah, playing music is great, but you know, you need to be healthy too. The guy would come and, and pick me up in Manhattan. He'd drive me to his place and, you know, uh, further upstate and he'd cook me breakfast the mm. first thing, you know, and it'd be like brown rice and ginger and eggs. And I was like, this is awful, you know, and I was living on pizza <laughs> and he's like, he's like, man, you gotta, you gotta get healthy. You gotta, you, you know, it's your life is not just music. It's, there's more to it and you need to you need to look at look at these other aspects. Um, so I would say, yeah, uh, approach it holistically. Approach it without a sense of competitive, um, you know, this this competitive spirit of I need to be better than anybody else. It doesn't matter. And and just tell your story. Um, you know, music gives you a language of the soul. It gives you a purely emotional language in a sense. Um, and Therefore, you can kind of communicate things through music that you maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to verbalize. Um, and that's meaningful just in itself, just in the ability to do that. 
and it's like it's most likely meaningful to someone else as well because um someone is going to hear what you have to say and and resonate with it um and and i think that's the other thing is realize you do have something to say and whether you think it's as good as so and so <laughs> or you know the people that you idolize it's still significant um and so just go after it um and develop it and um gosh that's a lot of advice <laughs> <laughs> just, but you know i mean just just be you with it yeah. and and don't worry about where the chips yeah, fall yeah well, i like i like what you said a second ago um i mean i like all of that of course but especially the the comment about kind of is the music all that you like is it all you're living for in a way uh, I had a teacher in college who, who was a violinist, and he basically he said he kind of like has to remind himself that like my hands could stop working, like I could get in an accident or something, and I wouldn't be able to play the violin anymore. Would I there like would I then say my life is now over? If so, I have an unhealthy relationship with this art form. Yep, I think yep. that's wise um, because. Yeah, stuff happens sometimes, and if you can't play anymore, and now you feel like you might as well die, like that's probably not the super, a healthy, healthy way to look at it. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's that's how I used to look at things. I used to think, well, if my hands were cut off or something, I just I don't know what I would do, right? I would have no reason to live. Um, so yeah, I think, but just realizing that your that the music is bigger than the performance and bigger than the fame, uh, but then also realizing that you are more than this the craft or the skill the ability uh and that uh music can the music can be expressed through you in other ways as well you know um and yeah it's really just a a gift to to be part of the heritage and to to uh, have music be such a big part of my life and i just i wish i saw it that way sooner <laughs> i think we all could say that Yep. So if people wanted to find out more about you, do you have like a website or any sort of presence online people could look up what you're up to? Yes. Um, uh, TomCatMusic.biz is my website. Um, and there are some music clips there. There's a short blurb about, there's my bio and my story. Um, and not much else. I kind of just, it's there for uh, people, potential employers to kind of look up and um, but uh, yeah, there's not like a full press kit or anything, but yeah, just some basic information on me and a lot of uh, videos that I've posted uh, of me playing through the years, actually some, some super old videos and some much newer. So great. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to add that we didn't talk about? No, that was great, man. Yeah. It was great to be able to talk about all that. So Good. thank you for the opportunity. Good. Okay. So, um, well, thanks for, for talking with me. Yeah. It's good to talk to anybody. I know. That's true. That's true. <laughs>